0: Hello. I am a robot. You are listening to an Echo of Glory. A 200% podcast. Hello everybody, and welcome to the 18th episode of an Echo of Glory a 200% podcast. My name is Ian King, and over the course of this series, I'll be telling you the history of football in England and Wales, tracing the story of the game from the mob game of the Middle Ages through to the modern day. The England national team went into decline after the transient high of Euro 96, as the FA lost oversight of a Premier League that it had endorsed in the first place in order to weaken the Football League. The clubs were in charge now and the biggest clubs were in charge more than anybody else. As the transfer market changed forever Manchester United and Arsenal formed a hegemony at the top of the league and other clubs tried to tap into the stock market which enriched their owners but didn't close the gap. But there was growing disenchantment at the way in which the game was being run across all levels and a rash of protest early in the 21st century proved that there could be a different way of running a football club that didn't prostrate itself at the altar of Mammon. This is the story of football in England and Wales from 1995 to 2002. first half of the 1990s, two rulings would change the direction of professional football forever. The backpass rule and the Bosman ruling. The backpass rule was introduced in 1992 in order to discourage time-wasting and unduly defensive play after the 1990 World Cup was widely criticised as having been boring. The first games played under the new rule were at the 1992 Summer Olympic Games in Barcelona. Early matches resulted in some confusion in defences. Indeed, in the very first game, Italy fell foul of it and the USA were able to score after being awarded an indirect free kick 15 yards out. The back pass rule has been considered one of the most popular and successful rule changes in the modern game. As well as stopping a tendency towards unnecessarily defensive football, It also required goalkeepers to become more proficient with playing the ball with their feet and it has been cited as the start of the evolution of the playmaking sweeper-keeper. It changed the nature of the game itself more than anyone foresaw in 1992. The Bosman ruling, meanwhile, changed the relationship between players and their clubs in a similar manner. Jean-Marc Bosman was a player with four RFC Liège in the Belgian First Division whose contract had expired in 1990. He wanted to change clubs and move to Dunkirk, a French team. However, Dunkirk refused to meet the Belgian club's transfer fee demand, so Liège refused to release him. In the meantime, Bosman's wages were reduced as he was no longer a first-team player. He took his case to the European Court of Justice in Luxembourg and sued for restraint of trade, citing FIFA's rules regarding transfers. On the fifteenth of December 1995, the court ruled that the transfer system, as it was constituted, placed a restriction on the free movement of workers and was prohibited under EU law. Bosman and all other EU footballers were given the right of a free transfer at the expiration date of their contracts, providing that they were transferring from a club within one EU association to a club within another EU association. Prior to the Bosman ruling, professional clubs in some parts of Europe had been able to prevent players from joining a club in another country even if their contracts had expired. In the United Kingdom, for example, transfer tribunals had been in place since 1981 to resolve disputes over fees between clubs when transferring players at the end of their contracts. The Bosman ruling meant that players could move to a new club at the end of their contract without their old club receiving a penny. Players could now agree a pre-contract with another club for a free transfer if the player's contract with their existing club had six months or less remaining to run. The ruling meant that clubs could no longer block a move or demand a fee from the player or from the destination club if the player left at the end of their contract, and this coupled with the sudden growth in revenues in the bigger European leagues at the same time, only seemed to exacerbate the gap between the richest clubs, who almost benefited from the ruling as much as players, and the rest. By 2005, though, UEFA was looking to act on its negative consequences. Importing players from outside Europe and the growing gap between the rich and poor clubs were all cited as problems with the ruling and meetings with the EU ended with the first steps being taken towards financial fair play. Gary and Alan, like the rest of us, looking forward to a new season with a new league. There are new rules. Pass back at your peril. And it all came from a cross by Gary McAllister, but Roger Joseph here. Now, was he in two minds about passing back to the goalkeeper? I think he may have been. Chapman certainly robbed him and steered it wide of Sega's. In the warm afterglow of the 1990 World Cup Finals, the Premier League had been formed. When the same glow appeared after Euro 96, another step towards the corporatisation of football took place, this time manifesting itself most obviously in a rush of clubs towards the stock market. It shouldn't really have been possible that owners could profiteer off the backs of their clubs – Since the 1890s, the FA had rules which limited the remuneration directors could get from clubs, whether through dividends or salaries. In 1983, however, the Tottenham Hotspur chairman Irving Scholar had found a workaround for this, by making the football club a wholly owned subsidiary of a PLC, which was then floated on the stock market. Throughout 1996 and 1997, clubs embraced various stock markets with dollar signs in their eyes. Sir John Hall had spent £3 million buying into Newcastle United between 1989 and 1992, when the club was languishing in the second division. He floated the club in April 1997, at the peak of the bubble, and his shareholding was valued at £102 million. A month later, Aston Villa did the same, valuing its shares at £11 each and the club at £126 million. Doug Ellis made £4 million from selling a chunk of the shares that he'd bought just a few years earlier for £500,000 and continued as the chairman, making a handsome amount of money from annual dividends and a salary. By 2004, The shares that he sold were worth less than £3 each. The corporatisation came at a cost, though. A new deal with Sky in 1997 was worth £670 million, but the disparity between the Premier League and the Football League couldn't have been more stark. All the more so because the hyperinflation of wages meant that a majority of clubs were leaking money left, right and centre. If a club fell through the Premier League trapdoor and were relegated, it could be near catastrophic for them. Nottingham Forest, twice champions of Europe, were relegated at the end of the first season of the Premier League in 1993 and spent much of the rest of the decade bouncing between the two divisions. They were relegated from it for the last time in 1999. Sheffield Wednesday joined them the following year. Both clubs had floated just a couple of years earlier. Leeds United, whose overspending became famous at around the turn of the century, were eventually relegated from the Premier League in 2004. None of these three clubs have returned since these relegations, more than a decade and a half ago, and all three have suffered drops into the third tier and spells in administration. But what Venables hadn't worked out, or hadn't been told, was that he was walking into a fire sale. Leeds' debts were racing towards 80 million. The club was in a hole and still digging. Cash had to be found from somewhere. Two years without Champions League football was the death knell, and it meant serious restructuring. It meant having to to effectively downsize the squad, their major asset that they'd invested in, to reduce the the wage costs, and to try and recover some of the capital that had been invested in the playing squad. In order to service the debt, players were offloaded. First to go was Ferdinand, sold to Man United for a new transfer record of 30 million, 12 million more than Leeds had paid for him. A rare piece of good business. We have to accept that buying and selling players is part and parcel. If you invest in a big playing squad and you have to recoup some cash, people shouldn't be pointing the finger if indeed you not only recoup the cash but do a good job in the transfer market. But apart from Ferdinand... Leeds' transfer dealings were disastrous. In any business, when you try to offload assets when you have to in a fire sale, you don't get the market value. And Leeds found that to, the, to their cost. They found that clubs were taking full market advantage of the dire straits that Leeds were in. They got nowhere near the prices that they had paid for these players at the top of the market. Manchester United continued their dominance of the Premier League into the new century. Alex Ferguson had a difficult start to his time at Old Trafford, and it is commonly assented that he was close to getting the sack by the start of 1990. However, by the middle of the 1990s, he seemed to have near-shamanic abilities, bringing in such a disparate group of players as goalkeeper Peter Schmeichel, the wayward but prodigiously talented Eric Cantona, and the so-called Class of 92, a group of five inordinately talented young players from the club's youth system, which included one who would go on to become a global superstar, David Beckham. United maximised their commercial revenue. They expanded Old Trafford until it held 67,000 people and generally seemed to understand the nature of the new football better than anybody else. They didn't often need to blow anybody out of the transfer market Walters, in terms of spending either. Largely because increasingly outward transfer markets suited them down to the ground. Ferguson seemed to know the right time to make changes as well. When Beckham's brand became too unwieldy, he was moved on. Others, on the other hand, simply stayed and stayed. The class of 92 racked up over 2,200 appearances for the club between them. They won the double for a second time in 1996 and the Premier League title again in 1997. The only fly in Manchester United's ointment came from North London. Arsenal had gone sideways after winning two league titles in three years at the turn of the decade and by 1996 were little more than a fair to middling Premier League club. When they sacked manager Bruce Rioch in the summer of 1996 though, chairman David Dean pulled a true rabbit out of the hat. Arsene Wenger hadn't enjoyed a stellar career as either a player or manager and there was general disbelief when he was appointed the new Arsenal manager, having previously been appointed by Nagoya Grampus 8 in Japan. However, by the end of his first season in charge, he'd taken them to third place in the table. And the following year, it was Arsenal's turn to win the double. Wenger would go on to stamp his personality on Arsenal in a similar way to that achieved by Herbert Chapman 70 years earlier. And further success would follow with Premier League titles in 2002 and 2004. With the 2004 achievement being all the more notable for being an unbeaten Premier League season the first time that a top-division club have managed such a thing since Preston North End in 1889. But clatter apart, it's bold onto Adams. This would be a fairy story! Can there be a sweeter moment? Tony Adams clinches Arsenal's Championship. They will think they have died and gone to heaven. What a professional. What a finish. The man who has been through hell on and off the field. His third of the season. Poetic justice indeed for a man who this his modern day hobbies as reading poetry. A man who has reinvented himself as a player and got better. For Manchester United though, the crowning glory of their achievements throughout the 1990s would come the following year in 1999, with a treble of the Premier League title, the FA Cup and the UEFA Champions League. The FA Cup was won with a 2-0 win against Newcastle United at Wembley, whilst the Premier League title was taken back by a single point from Arsenal with a 2-1 win against Spurs on the last day of the season. The Champions League, however, remained the prize that United wanted to win more than anything else. Finishing in the second place in the league at the end of the previous season, however, had left them disadvantaged in more than one way. Not only did they have to play a qualifying match to get through to the group stages of the competition, but once there, their depressed seeding left them in a group with both Bayern Munich and Barcelona. Twenty goals in six group matches were enough to see them through behind Bayern Munich, though, with Barcelona eliminated. After a quarter-final win against Internacional that was tighter than the eventual 3-1 aggregate score suggested, their semi-final against Juventus proved to be the defining performance of their run to the final. Held to a 1-1 draw in the first leg at Old Trafford, it looked as though getting to the final might be beyond them, after Filippo Inzaghi scored twice in the first 11 minutes to give Juventus a 3-1 aggregate lead. However, a comeback sparked by a goal pulled back by Roy Keane ended in a 3-2 win and a place in the final against Bayern Munich in Barcelona. The final couple of minutes in Barcelona were as unforgettable as the previous 91 had been. A six-minute goal from Mario Basler had given Bayern the lead, but after an hour and a half of huffing and puffing to little effect, very late goals from Teddy Sheringham and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer handed United their second European title. In towards Michael. it's comfort to you York. Cleared, Giggs with a shot, Sheringham... To Sheringham, and Chelsea has won it. Champions of Europe again, and nobody will ever win a European Cup final more dramatically than this. The following season, though, Manchester United were put in an impossible position when the FA asked them to attend FIFA's new World Club Championship in the January forcing them to withdraw from the 1999-2000 FA Cup in order to do so, the first time that such a high-profile club had done anything like this. United's trip to Brazil for the tournament turned out to be something of a disaster. Held to withdraw by the Mexican side Nacaxa in their opening match, they were then comfortably beaten by Vasco da Gama to be eliminated from the competition with a game to spare. The club was eviscerated in the press for having jettisoned the FA Cup, but the FA had heavily pressurised United to go, believing that it would be good for the bid if they did so. With the benefit of 20 years' hindsight, the biggest achievement of the whole episode was the FA accelerating a process of the devaluation of their own competition, which continues unabated to this day. The 2000 FA Cup final between Chelsea and Aston Villa was an occasion memorable only for being the last to be played at the old Wembley Stadium. As part of the FA's World Cup bid, it had been decided to knock the stadium down and build a new one on the site. There was much hand-wringing about the loss of the stadium's iconic Twin Towers in the press, but after the cost of saving them was quoted at 20 million pounds this criticism died down a little but the decision to apply for the 2006 finals was in itself controversial. It was suggested that the FA and the DFB, the German Football Association, had previously agreed that Germany would stand aside in the bidding for the Euro 96 if England stood aside for Germany's 2006 World Cup bid and that the FA had reneged on this agreement. In UEFA politics, this translated as England having fallen in behind Sepp Blatter's bid to become the head of FIFA against UEFA's Lennart Johansson. Blatter won, but was supporting South Africa's unsuccessful bid for the 2006 finals rather than England's. The FA went on to make a series of misinformed decisions to the detriment of the bid. This included FA chief executive and Graham Kelly and chairman Keith Wiseman unsuccessfully attempting to remove the Scottish Football Association's David Will from the FIFA executive and replace him with Wiseman, which ended in both Kelly and Wiseman being removed from their posts. This inept politicking hit the England bid hard, and two days before the final presentations were to be made to FIFA, Brazil withdrew its bid to support South Africa. On the same day, the English big came in for criticism from FIFA from the way in which it had been conducted. England's big ended up in third place, behind both Germany and South Africa, and with the FA's reputation on the international stage seriously damaged. The executive committee was placed in front of two alternatives, to be innovative, to invest with courage and trust in a new continent or to stand with the established football powers. And to announce you the winner. And the winner is Deutschland. Supporters of the England national team had hardly been helping the case of the England bid either. In France at the 1998 World Cup finals and in Belgium at Euro 2000, they rioted, causing significant damage to the idea that England had successfully tackled its hooligan problem. England qualified automatically for the 1998 World Cup finals by the skin of their teeth with a goalless draw in Rome against Italy finally securing their place without having to go through a play-off. Once there, their 2-0 win against Tunisia was overshadowed by violence earlier that day in Marseille, and they were beaten by Romania in their second match, before another 2-0 win, this time against Colombia, saw them through to the second round to play Argentina in Saint-Étienne. Three goals in the first 16 minutes saw England 2 1 up, before an equaliser pulled Argentina level just before half time. The second half sending off of David Beckham handed the tabloid press a convenient scapegoat for an eventual defeat on penalty kicks. Beckham now to Owen, and here's another Owen run. He's going to worry them again. It's a great run by Michael Owen, and he might finish it off. Oh, it's a wonderful goal! Most unerring finish beyond Roa to make it 2 1 England. A terrific moment. Glenn Hoddle, who'd replaced Terry Venables after Euro 96, had to resign early in 1999 over comments made in a press interview in which he stated that the disabled and others were being punished for sins committed in former lives. He was replaced by the Newcastle United manager Kevin Keegan but things only went from bad to worse on the pitch. At Euro 2000, as England supporters wreaked havoc outside the stadiums, the team imploded, throwing away an early two-goal lead in their opening match against Portugal to lose 3-2, beating the worst German team of the last 40 years in their second match and then clumsily losing 3-2 to Romania in their final group match when a draw would have been enough to see them through to the quarter-finals. Keegan hung on in the England job until October 2000. Drawn in the same group as Germany and qualifying for the 2002 World Cup finals, the home match between the two was scheduled as the last to be played at the old Wembley Stadium before its demolition. In a display of pathetic fallacy for the state of the England national team at the time, Germany won a poor game by a goal to nil on a dreary grey afternoon and Keegan resigned after the match. His replacement was a reflection of a wider debate going on within the English game at the time. Sven Joran Eriksson was a widely respected club coach, but he wasn't English, and the question of whether a non-English manager should be managing the national team raged throughout his time in charge. Eriksson's response was to at least get them winning again, not least with a 5-1 win in Munich against Germany in the group return match that ranked amongst England's finest performances of the previous few years. Even so, though, it took a last-minute moment of brilliance in their final qualifying match from David Beckham against Greece at Old Trafford to rescue the point that sent England to the finals without having to go through a playoff. They've made it by the skin of their teeth again. Oh, the Green Support This playing for a goal. comes to take. The 93rd minute at Old Trafford. Beckham! Yes! Yes! He's dead. Dead. done it! It's 2-2. And England may still be going to the World Cup automatically. It's a fantastic ending to a very, very poor performance. The 2002 World Cup finals were yet again a mixed bag for England. On the one hand, their supporters were widely praised for once for their behaviour, and the team's overall performance in reaching the quarter finals before losing to the favourites was respectable enough, whilst their 3 0 win against Denmark in the second round was wrapped up by half time, a drama free win unfamiliar to England fans. On the other hand, though, England's 2002 World Cup finals was one of ifs and buts. Their group performances were less than stellar, even if they did include a win against rivals Argentina. Whilst their inability to create much of substance in reply to Brazil taking the lead in their quarter-final match hinted strongly at the ongoing gulf between this team and the best in the world, even in one of the most open World Cups in years. goals I think um, Ferdinand and Campbell have been the best pair in the tournament so far Larsen, Battistuta, Agahara Thomason they all pose different kinds of threats they're all tame but this is different again oh this is this is the hardest they're going to come up against probably in their career they're not going to play against two better strikers than uh, Rivaldo and Ronaldo Ronaldinho takes and David Seamans call off his line and Brazil take the lead Ronaldinho has scored. David Seaman is caught cold. Meanwhile, back at home, a financial crisis was set to engulf the Football League. On Digital launched in November 1998 as a digital television service. Almost immediately, though, there were problems. Difficulties with supplying set-top boxes meant that lucrative Christmas sales were missed while Sky's alternative was aggressively priced and marketed, making the on-digital service look expensive and unattractive by comparison. By the start of 2000, these teething problems had solidified into a perpetual feeling of crisis. on digital signal strength wasn't as strong as had been expected, leading to reception problems in some areas, whilst the boxes themselves had confusing menus and no electronic programme guide. With debts mounting and subscriber numbers stagnant, the company rebranded itself as ITV Digital in the summer of 2001 and decided to go all in, bidding £315 million to secure exclusive rights to show Football League and League Cup matches over the next three years. It was a disaster for all concerned. ITV Digital couldn't afford this contract. This much was obvious but the problem was that the clubs of the football league had already started spending the money as the 2001-2002 season progressed the situation became more desperate and on the 27th of march 2002 itv digital was put into administration the company sought to renegotiate its contract with the football league offering 50 million pounds for the remainder of the contract that they'd held But the football league turned it down. On the first of May two thousand and two, all ITV digital channels stopped broadcasting, except for ITV digital sport, which kept going for a further ten days. By the time the dust had settled, over a thousand jobs had been lost. By the time the company was formally liquidated in October, they owed one point two five billion pounds. ITV digital had spent, it was estimated. £750 million pounds to get itself 1.2 million subscribers. The Football League, with its member clubs having lost £178.5 million pounds as a result of this collapse, took the matter to the High Court. But on the 1st of August 2002, they lost the case. Sky picked up the pieces for a fraction of the previous price. The effect on clubs was immediate and terrible, They'd already started spending the money and making financial commitments based on this contract being seen through, and First Division clubs reacted furiously to the Sky deal, many believing it to have been signed in haste by the Football League. Their annual television money fell by two-thirds, from £2 million a year to £700,000 a year. The Football League's internal economy completely stagnated as a result of all of this. Building projects were put on hold or scaled back at five different clubs, and 14 collapsed into administration by 2006. The gap between the Premier League and the rest was continuing to grow. The problem is that ITV Digital can't afford the contract it signed with the Football League for the rights to televise games. It owes the clubs almost £180 million, but hasn't been able to attract enough subscribers. That's bad news for the government too. It wants everyone to convert to digital television in the next few years. It's a big setback on the route towards a fully digital Britain. I support that aim, but if we're going to get there, we have to learn the lessons of what's gone wrong at ITV Digital. Some of those are the fault of the companies involved. Some of them are the fault of the government. We have to make sure that the signal that you get through your aerial for digital TV is as good as the signal you get from the satellite or the cable services. The summer of 2002 also saw another seismic shock in the Football League. Wimbledon had retained their top-flight status after winning the FA Cup in 1988, but the cost of developing their plough-lane home had proved insurmountable following the Taylor report, and in 1991 they left to ground share at Selhurst Park instead. Against all odds, the Cub retained its status into the Premier League era and beyond, but the issues surrounding a home of their own would be ongoing throughout the 1990s not least the controversial proposal to move the club to Dublin. Chair and Sam Hammam later claimed to have looked at every possible stadium site in Merton, but the League of Ireland argued that moving the club to Dublin would endanger its existence and in September 1996 about 300 fans rallied in Dublin under the slogan Resist the Dublin Dons, whilst there was also angry opposition from Wimbledon supporters. In 1997, Hamam sold the club for £26 million to two Norwegian businessmen whilst retaining an advisory position within the club. The following year, with the Premier League in England having agreed to plan to move the club, the Football Association of Ireland vetoed the move. Hamam sold his shares in February 2000. Well he knows that whistle is just moments away now, and Bradford have a Premiership lifeline and they move out of the bottom three for the first time in four months with only their second win in their last 12 parade today the two goals by Peter Beagree the one by Dean Windass secured Bradford's win but referee Jeff Winter and his officials very much in the limelight a penalty that never was and then a red card for John Hartson sent off for foul and abusive language the scales in Bradford's favour and they have won this vital relegation clash by three goals to nil. Relegation from the Premier League in the year 2000, more than half the club's crowds. And by this time, the Norwegians had installed Charles Koppel as chairman. In August 2001, Koppel announced the decision to move the club to Milton Keynes as part of a deal with a consortium run by a music executive called Peter Winkleman. But the Football League rejected the move stating that any Milton Keynes club would have to earn membership by progressing through the pyramid and that franchised football would be disastrous. Koppel appealed and the Football League agreed to arbitration through the FA in January 2002 but the panel only kicked the matter back to the league. Eventually tiring of the ongoing disputes With the atmosphere at Selhurst Park having turned toxic with support to protest and with the likelihood growing of extensive legal bills which would ultimately land on the desks of other football league clubs themselves, the league agreed, with the FA, to a three-man independent commission to settle the matter once and for all. The commission met in May 2002 and on the 28th of that month, to the astonishment and horror of everybody who held the pyramid system The idea that football in this country is a meritocracy and that towns and cities that want a Football League or Premier League club should have to start at the bottom and work their way up. Dear, they approved the move. As if to compound the insult... Not only to the supporters of Wimbledon FC, but to the supporters of all football clubs, the Commission stated that resurrecting the club from its ashes as, say, Wimbledon Town would not be in the wider interests of football. These were words that would sum up the growing disconnect between the professional game and a growing proportion of its supporters by the start of the 21st century. Wimbledon moved to the National Hockey Stadium in Milton Keynes in 2003, pending the building of a new stadium there, changing the club's name to MK Dons in the summer of 2004. They retain their pariah club status to this day. You've got that horrible feeling that the worst thing is going to happen, but you can't make yourself believe it until it does. We'd lost... And that, that, that they were going to relocate the club to Milton Keynes and, and they, they, they'd won, we'd lost. But I was one of those people that was saying, if they go to Milton Keynes, we'll start again. It's not about whether we're at Sellers Park or whether we're at Plough Lane, it's about whether we've got a club that we believe is Wimbledon Football Club. It doesn't matter whether we lose 5 in 0 in a park on a Sunday, if it still feels like Wimbledon Football Club to us and we all still feel the same thing, it's that shared emotion. The overwhelming majority of Wimbledon supporters did not, of course, follow the franchise to Milton Keynes. On the 30th of May 2002, the idea was put forward in a Wimbledon Independent Supporters Association meeting to create a new community club called AFC Wimbledon and an appeal for funds was launched. There was something of a template upon which this new club could be built as well. On the other side of London to Wimbledon, Enfield FC had been one of the most successful non-league clubs of the 1960s, 1970s and 1980s, winning the Alliance Premier League twice, both times before the introduction of automatic promotion and relegation with the Football League, both the Amateur Cup and the FA Trophy twice, and who had reached the fourth round of the FA Cup in 1981. This success, however, didn't last. The club was relegated in 1990 and financial problems grew despite the club holding its owner level down in the Premier Division of the Isthmian League. In 1995, they won the league but were denied promotion back into the conference because the league were unsatisfied with the club's financial position. After a brief and disastrous ground share of the Saracens rugby club, Enfield's owner, Tony Lazarou, sold the club's ground to Southbury Road in 1999, arranging several short-term ground shares before resettling it 10 miles away in Boreham Wood. This was described by Lazarou as a temporary move while he looked for a new stadium within the borough, but two years later, after no new site had been identified and a dispute had developed regarding an escrow account it was clear that the new stadium wasn't going to be forthcoming. The Enfield Supporters Trust resolved in June 2001 that Lazarou lacked sufficient will to bring the club back to Enfield and voted overwhelmingly to form a new club, Enfield Town, which based itself locally and won the support of much of the original Enfield fan base. Enfield Town was the first breakaway club. And in 2011, they moved into a new stadium that they part-paid for themselves, just a few hundred yards from the old Southbury Road site. It could be done. The very existence of Enfield Town Supporters Trust tapped into a growing dissatisfaction that supporters of many lower league clubs had felt throughout the 1990s. Brighton supporters, angered at the sale of the Goldstone Ground by the club's owners, had organised a Supporters United Day in 1997, while threatened with relegation from the Football League, to protest against the maladministration of several football clubs. Supporters from dozens of other clubs joined the crowd at the Goldstone Ground for a match as Albion fought to stay in the Football League. They were just about to be made homeless, evicted from their home of 70 years by unscrupulous owners who had effectively given themselves the right to do so. Protest was becoming increasingly commonplace at such clubs as Doncaster Rovers, where the owners paid arsonists to burn down the stadium's main stand for the insurance money, or at York City, where one owner bled the club dry and then sold it to an eccentric for a pound who tried to rebrand it as a soccer club and almost killed it altogether. At Barrow, where a boxing promoter quietly siphoned the ground off to himself and was found to have done so outside of company law and had to return it. At Notts County or QPR, to name just two, who fell into a financial abyss as a result of the ITV digital money disappearing and bad management. Supporters' trusts, formal democratic, not-for-profit organisations seeking to strengthen the influence of supporters over the running of clubs, formed in response to this, and had been growing in number since the first was formed at Northampton Town in 1992. AFC Wimbledon quickly became among the standard-bearers for the entire movement, whether they liked it or not. The new club held open trials on Wimbledon Common a couple of weeks after its formation, with over 200 players turning out. The club started fundraising and managed to arrange a ground share with nearby Kingstonian, having secured a place in the Combined Counties League. Having managed to get a team together, they played their first match, a friendly against Sutton United, a month later. A combination of positive media coverage and the fans themselves being fully behind the new club meant that a crowd of more than 4,000 people turned out for it. The result, they lost 4-0, was the least important aspect of the entire day. With the ITV digital collapse and the formation of AFC Wimbledon, the late spring of 2002 might have been a more of a pivotal moment in modern English football history than it is often given the credit for being. A schism was opening up between the elite game, which could now only be funded by huge television contracts and the intervention of multimillionaires, and the rest of us. And a small but growing number within that rest were starting to come to the realisation that there could be another way of doing things, that the march towards a turbo-capitalist future wasn't the only way in which football could be run, a club could be run as a business, but also as a collective labour of love. There would be no revolution, at least there wouldn't be by 2020, but there would be a growing sense that the game was being taken away from supporters in 2002, and this feeling would continue to grow. The billionaires, however were already settling into the Premier League. The black belt and karate Working for the City. She has to discipline her body. 200% 200% podcast Don't forget to rate And review on iTunes Find us on Facebook By searching 200% Or on Twitter at 2 W-O-H-P Be close to each other And grow